Hi and welcome to my latest podcast. I'm super excited you're joining me as we go through the Gospel of John and we look at Jesus through the eyes of one of his best friends and we come across some incredible theological gems, some wonderful stories and just this amazing perspective that's really different from the other three Gospel writers. So buckle up and join me, Paul White, as we saunter through the book of John. Saunterers, welcome to another saunter. Here we go, we are on John chapter 2. We are sauntering through the book of John. We're looking at um, Jesus through the eyes of one of his best friends. So that's really, really cool. It's like his privileged access to Jesus. And bear in mind, John, good morning, Fran. John walked and talked with Jesus day after day for three years. He knew him intimately and knew his ways and was one who Jesus very much loved and so we're going to pray Lord we thank you for this amazing book this amazing insight into Jesus we thank you for the apostle John we thank you for all that he has been to generations of believers Lord and today Holy Spirit we invite you to help us and understand and to see stuff that we've not seen before and just have a bigger revelation of Jesus and who he is amen good morning Kathy so we're in chapter two very famous passage of the Bible. It's Jesus's first miracle. It's been very, some very funny jokes <laughs> about priests and stuff with this one. Good morning, Ruth. Great to see you and Chris. And so here we go. John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come or has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. This is an interesting little story. And it's, it's a kind of insight into um, Jesus in that really early stage of his ministry. They've gone to a wedding and it's really lovely to think that Jesus was happy to be invited to a wedding along with his mum. It's interesting that John says the mother of Jesus was there as a kind of first statement and then and Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited with his disciples and someone said... <laughs> because they run out of wine we know the story but someone said yes probably because the disciples all got invited and they weren't expecting them to tag along with Jesus that's maybe but so Jesus's mum has been invited to a wedding and Jesus also was there and so note that John calls her Jesus's mother at that point and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So mum comes to son and says, son, they've got no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman. And I've often, I remember, good morning, Kev, good morning, Mike and Pat. I've often looked at this one and thought, it just sounds a little bit rough from Jesus to call his mum woman and not to call her mum or you know even like slightly impatient oh mum but he's he says woman and it's almost like at that point Jesus is 
purposely slightly distancing himself from Mary, his mum. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So there has been a huge amount of conversation and conflict over whether or not Mary is able to be an intercessor because of her privileged position as the mother of Jesus and to go to Jesus as a mother might go to their son and say, oh, come on, son, can you just give us a little bit of special help here? Because, you know, it's difficult. And because it's mum asking and she's his mum, that's a kind of like we can't we can see that kind of logic that somehow G- Mary might have special access or might have a kind of special leverage with Jesus, her son. And but Jesus seems to be actually. I don't know how intentional this is, but every word of scripture is God breathed. And I think we should just see this for a second that Jesus doesn't like do it. Be- oh, because you're my mum, I'll do it. He says, woman, what what have actually I got to do with you? What time, you know, you, you're sl- what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. My hour. This isn't actually the time when I'm about to start doing this kind of stuff. But Mary, nonetheless, is a woman of God. She's incredibly prophetic. She's been hearing from angels and prophets all her life about her son. So she knows his destiny. She has been listening. She's been guarding up these things as treasures and treasuring them in her heart and meditating on them she was full of the scriptures she knew what the old testament said and she was very very sure that her son was and is the messiah the anointed one who was to come so she's thinking he can do anything he's my son but he's more than that he's the messiah he can do anything i'm sure i'm sure this is not beyond him now if it was now we'd just get on the phone wouldn't we and we'd call uber eats or something and say can you bring a few crates of shiraz or something because we need to get this party started or as the party's about to grind to a halt and it's going to look bad And so in Jesus's day and age, if you ran out of wine at a wedding, which was supposed to be the ultimate of feasts and joyful occasions, running out of wine was like insulting your guests and somehow you had failed. And so Mary understood that this was a big situation. It wasn't just, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a bit more wine around the place? She knows that her friend who's invited her is actually about to look bad in the eyes of the other guests. And so there would have been whispering backwards and forwards among the servants no doubt and Mary gets to hear about it and but he says no actually is not my hour yet my hour has not yet come but Mary nonetheless is going to keep the door open and she says well look to the servants just do whatever he tells you to do you know because even now he might just you know he might change his mind and he might kind of um relent now Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which um, they're big. I think this might be American gallons because this might be an American version of the Bible. But anyway, 
so I have no idea what that means. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become now become wine and did not know where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now and this was the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him this is cool this is super cool. So Jesus is there. He's at a party. The whole thing is starting to kind of take on a slightly wrong tone because it's all everyone's going to look embarrassed. Who's organized the, the bridegroom and the, everyone is going to all look a little bit like they've let their guests down. Jesus gets these gets the servants to fill these big stone water jars, which were there. Right. OK. In the Jewish law there were lots and lots and lots of particular laws that related to purification and related to washing and so they had to wash their hands before they ate a meal they had to wash before this wash before that and so they needed plenty of water around in a household these big stone jars were full of you got no sound is anyone oh you have now good (laughs) um uh, these big stone water jars full of water and or at least uh, possibly to be full of water. And so Jesus says to the servants, go and fill them up. So where they had to go to get the water, I have no idea. But there must have been quite a lot of to and fro in in the back rooms as the servants came and went with water from the pump or the well or wherever they got it. Well, I should imagine and filled these jars up. And I can imagine everybody's thinking, Whoa, this is amazing. And I wonder if anybody stopped and thought about the miracle of Elisha with the widow who had the little jar of oil and she kept pouring and kept pouring. And I wonder if they were thinking, oh, I wonder if he's going to do something like Elisha did back in back in the day. I wonder if this is going to be a miracle. I'm sure some people were just thinking, God, I don't know why he's got me doing this stupid job. But anyway, at least he's going to pay me. So here I go. And there's this backwards and forwards, filling up these big, big jars with water. And then they say, Jesus says, right now, draw some of it out and take it to the the uh, master of the feast. The master of the feast was like the catering manager, the event organizer who who made everyone who got everyone's seating plan worked out, made sure all the food was good and ready and hot or cold or whatever it's supposed to be and made sure there was enough wine and the right wine was served at the right time etc so they bring this wine to the master of ceremonies the organizer of the feast and he takes it and drinks it and he's like wow you have saved the best wine until last you have completely broken tradition you've ah this is this is amazing wine this is really good don't you love it that jesus didn't just turn out some cheap old plonk supermarket plonk but he did the very very best he made beautiful wine and i don't know 
I don't think this is overthinking it, but if you imagine, right, these big jars were there for an Old Testament ritual, part of the law of Moses, which was good and it was important and it was part of their everyday culture. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, he takes the things of the law and he brings them to life in such an incredible way. And suddenly what was just plain old water for washing your body now has become beautiful wine to drink. And I just think this is so Jesus. This is so what the anointing of the Holy Spirit is about. It takes the ordinary, makes it extraordinary. And just this was the first of Jesus' signs. It says that he revealed his glory. Remember in John's prologue, he says, we saw his glory. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. We saw. The word there for glory means a whole bunch of things. But it's the brightness, the shining. But it's it's the estimation, the esteem, the honor that you know the whole reputation of somebody is their glory that goes before them your reputation goes before you that's like your glory going before you good morning goran morning Anne. and uh so this is this is jesus taking something dull and ordinary and every day from the law from the kind of ritualistic law that they faithfully followed trying to observe the law of Moses and Jesus gets his hands on it well he didn't even touch it and but just because he's there and he's full of the spirit he is the anointed messiah he turns this ordinary substance into the richest beautiful wine the, the guy he tasted, he's like, wow, you have saved the best till last. And I just, we quote that indefinitely, don't we? God saves the best till last. We absolutely believe that. There have been many, many, many great and glorious events and seasons and times throughout church history mixed in with a lot of that old kind of purification water, just dull everyday stuff, everyday religion. And then Jesus comes, turns it into wine and do you know what? We're expecting that. We've seen him do that before. We're waiting for him to do it again right now. And I believe that we're in a season where we are literally about to taste some of the best wine we've ever had. And it is like, whoa, Jesus, you know, this is you are saving the best to last. Don't don't start thinking, oh, my best days are gone. My best days are in my past. My my excitement is in the rearview mirror now. And I'm just in kind of ordinariesville. No, let's have that expectation. Jesus has got some new wine even today. What's he going to do today? Hanging out with Jesus must have been a huge adventure because they just would not know what they were going to get every single day. Right, verse 12. So anyway, his disciples believed in him, which is good. (laughs) It's important. Right, here we go. Verse 12. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days it does seem jesus hung out in capernaum a fair bit and based himself there quite a lot um anyway you can look up that on your map they're not sure where cana is by the way so if you look for that it might not be there it might be somewhere else um verse 13 the passover of the jews was at hand big big festival um celebrating when the jewish or the israelite nation came out of slavery in egypt and there was a lamb killed and the blood was painted on the doorposts and around and then the 
angel of God's judgment that came on the nation of Egypt skipped over the houses that had the blood on the doorposts. And so the Passover was celebrated for perpetuity and still is celebrated by Jewish families and some Christian ones around the world today. But anyway, big, big festival. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So that would be where people would love to go because it's a big festival. Everyone was going to be there. It'd be like going to market. It used to be when I was a kid, only massively times more. Everyone and his dog was there. And they Barclay, William Barclay reckons there was two million people in Jerusalem at that time. That is a lot of people in a small city. In the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So once again, you don't know what you're going to get with Jesus. He goes into the temple. Everyone's thinking, oh, uh, I wonder what his disciples were thinking. Oh, well, this will be interesting. Go to the temple, do the Passover. I wonder how Jesus is going to handle this situation. But when he gets there, he is angry. He's full of kind of frustration and disappointment and obviously he knew this whole thing was going on but there's these people who are making money out of people coming to worship and they're exploiting the worshipers they're charging they're saying your pagan money won't work here you need to have temple money without the pagan king's insignia on it so we're going to change out your money they had a very very generous exchange rate and so you could say, well, some of the business may have been legitimate and they were selling pigeons and things for the sacrifices and everything else. And all this sheep and oxen, it must have been like a cattle market. And Jesus is just comes in, tips over the tables, turfs it over. But he's not even just done this spontaneously. He's made a whip of cords. He's spent some time getting some equipment together and he just goes in and bashes this thing over. And some people have said, oh, Jesus was wrong to do that. Listen, <laughs> when God brings judgment, he is not wrong. He is absolutely just and true in all his ways. All his judgments are good. And so he's just saying, listen, guys, you have made the house of God, my father's house, into a house of trade. And then the disciples remembered the scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I know about you, but I'm not seeing a lot of zeal for the Lord's house around. I'm seeing people who really are find it difficult to get out of bed and turn up to worship God, to have any real commitment to what God is doing. I'm just saying, you know, it's like, come on, where's the zeal for your house? Where's this thing? Where's this zeal? And it's not a humanly constructed zeal, obviously. It's something that came from the Holy Spirit that was on him. But I'm just saying, Jesus, come on, release that in your people. Let's see the zeal of the Lord among his people again. It's not like we're all trying to outdo each other by being radical and, whoa, look at me, I'm zealous. 
But it's just that hunger, that desire for God, that passion to be among his people. I'm going to worship even if even if I have to crawl there to worship. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to worship together with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to be contending. I'm going to be up praying. I'm going to be reaching out to God for God to move. And interestingly, the Passover has a whole load of stuff to do with looking built into the um, tradition where they search for the leaven in the house because it's all about eating unleavened bread. So there's any yeast or leaven in the house. The dad takes the kids on a leaven hunt and they find this bit of leaven and they throw it out the back door. What's Jesus doing? He's looking for the leaven. He's looking for the impurity, the yeast that's come into his father's house. He's saying, let's get this out. At the beginning of the Passover, let's get rid of this leaven that's in the house. Righty-ho. You can think about that. And I am slightly ranting this morning, <laughs> so bear with me. Right. Zeal for your house will consume me okay if you're listening to me this morning why don't you make that your prayer today lord let zeal for your house consume me not just a physical building it's not about that it's about what god is building and establishing on the earth come on let us be caught up with zeal for his house Right, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, where's your where's your badge? Where's your sheriff's badge or something like that? Come on, if you're the Messiah, they're saying, really, what they're saying is, come on, let's have some credentials here. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said... Then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Right, John does this quite a bit. You remember, I think I might have said in the first session that John is quite a theological writer and yet he tells us brilliant stories he tells us really fabulous stories with lots of kind of detail and attention to detail but he's saying the he makes lots of these little editorial comments and says um you know like this is this is to fulfill that this was written and they remembered and oh and then they put it together and do you know what I mean and he's speaking as an insider he's speaking as someone who went through that process he's like we didn't understand at first but now we do because we have um we we've had time to reflect on it where when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken Sorry, Fran, not getting at you for not coming this morning. You stay and get well. That's fine. Bless you. And <laughs> we'll see you soon. Um, but he's he's saying, listen, you can destroy this temple, this temple of my body. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Of course, exactly what happened. But the, the um, Jews and the Pharisees and everybody who's kind of interacting with him, because they're upset about their business being tipped over. 
they misunderstand him. They don't have any real insight into what he's saying or what he's doing at the time because their eyes are closed. And as partly because their hearts are closed, they can't see. It doesn't make any sense to them. So they just interpret it all in a naturalistic way. People have done that forever about Jesus. They've interpreted his actions in a naturalistic way and tried to make sense of it. They've tried to understand intellectually. There's something about revelation. It needs to be God opening our eyes but that comes as well as we begin to open our hearts and we say God I'm willing for you to show me I'm willing for you to convince me I'm willing for you to give me understanding and insight into all of this and so his disciples of course were there to learn and they were disciples they were being instructed and they're thinking well how does this work with us and so they interrogated the whole process they were asking Jesus they dialogued with him they talked among each other and they were trying to understand it. And of course, that that's the key, isn't it? Right. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So that's an interesting little riddle there just at the end of the chapter. And John's saying that not people did believe in Jesus following all of this and at this time. But Jesus was careful about who he entrusted himself to because he knew what was in people's hearts. And we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that actually many of the people who um, even right up until the end on the on Palm Sunday, the people who welcomed Jesus um ultimately turned again and be you know and said crucify him you know and didn't stop him at least being crucified but allowed the lynch mob to take him out and so jesus is riding he's beginning to gain popularity but he's also being cautious and wise about who he actually entrusts himself to and i think that little expression there he didn't entrust himself to them does bear a bit of thinking about and a bit of reflection. What does it actually mean to entrust yourself to somebody? You can love them, you can be kind to them, but there's a point sometimes where we have to say, look, you and I are on a different path. We're not actually walking the same way. We, I can't let you become an influencer in my life because I sense that your heart is not really on the same track as me and I want to give myself fully to walk with Jesus and as we'll see the way Jesus walks is challenging and demanding and so here's the question for us all today where's our heart at with Jesus are we just wanting to have a nice ride and have some fun and hope it works out okay and try and live the rest of our lives and not even be kind of particularly <clears throat> too radical or are we just prepared to say Jesus I'm all in with you I'm pushing all my chips onto the table I'm all in I'm just saying Jesus come on I'm all in and let zeal for your house consume me let me be caught up with the things that you're caught up with let me be someone you entrust yourself fully to as I entrust myself fully to you Jesus, we love you. Give us a great day today. Bless us all. Make Fran well really soon and 
just be with everyone wherever they're worshipping today. And those who are not, Lord, we pray that you'll just gather sons and daughters for yourself from just draw them out of their homes into your family in Jesus glorious name. Amen.